This is No Politics at the Dinner Table. I'm Tony Biancasino. And I'm Amit Prakash. Today, we've got on Nancy Rosenblum, um, who is a political scientist at Harvard, uh, the School of Government, and she, along with her co-author, Russell Muirhead of Dartmouth, have written this amazing book mm -hmm. called A Lot of People Are Saying About Conspiracy Theory. So... You heard a QAnon? You want to learn something about it? I mean, that's this is this is it. <laughs> Let's do it. All right. Okay, so we are so happy to be welcoming on the show uh, Nancy Rosenblum today. She is the Senator Joseph Clark Professor of Ethics in Politics and Government uh, Emerita at Harvard. Uh, she's a specialist in contemporary political thought and is the author of many books, uh, including Good Neighbors, The Democracy of Everyday Life in America, published in 2016, On the Side of Angels, An Appreciation of Parties and Partisanship. Uh, interest, I, I want to hear actually a little bit about that. Um, published 2010. Um, she has been the president uh, of the American Society for Political and Legal Philosophy and the past vice president of the American Political Science Association. Uh, and she's the co-editor of the Annual Review of Political Science. So we're very honored and happy to have you on today. Uh, she's here today to discuss her most recent book, uh, co-authored with uh, Russell Muirhead at Dartmouth, which is a must read for everybody. Um, and it's got a great title, A Lot of People Are Saying. The New Conspiracism and the Assault on Democracy published just last year. So thank you so much for coming on. Thanks for having me. All right. So I've got a million questions. We're not going to get to all of them, um, but there's so many impart important arguments and analyses in this book. Uh, can we start just maybe by unpacking the title? Right. So what is conspiracism and what is distinct about the contemporary version so much so that it merits the qualifier new? <laughs> Good question. Great place to start. Um, I'm sure your listeners have heard and, and uh, maybe even subscribed to certain conspiracy theories. And classically, uh, classic conspiracy theory is just that. It's a theory. It's an explanation of something. And it proceeds by way of evidence and arguments and dots and patterns that reveal the malignant intent behind some uh, secretive event. And conspiracy theories, I have to always say this at the start, sometimes are true. Right? Right. And sometimes the evidence and argument is warranted. And often it's not. So that's a classic conspiracy theory. It's a theory because it's an explanation. And we tend to think that conspiracy and theory are almost one thing. But the new conspiracism is distinct because it decouples conspiracy and theory. We have what we call conspiracy without the theory. It doesn't use evidence. It dispenses with argument. It has none of the sort of reasoning that makes a conspiracy theory, whether it's warranted or unwarranted, sort of like the thinking that we usually do when you talk about the cause of something and the consequence of something. And to go back to the title, what, what um, validates a conspiracy claim that has no theory, a simple, sheer assertion, like the election is rigged, or climate change is a hoax, no evidence, no argument. So what validates it is repetition. Mm -hmm. A lot of people are saying, a lot of people are saying that the Mueller report was an attempted coup against the president. So it's like the grapevine gone mad. Right. So, like, <laughs> you know, people just kind of repeating stuff. And because we have the technology to do that instantaneously on a mass scale, is, is it more dangerous now than previous conspiracy theories? Well, it is more dangerous now. And you've put your finger on one of the, um, the interesting aspects of it, which is how much it is tied to social media. Mm -hmm. uh, most people emphasize the fact that you can reach lots of people and it's costless and almost instantaneous. Um, I think that there's a special distinctive connection between social media and the uh, new conspiracism, the conspiracy without the theory. And that is, if your validation is that a lot of people are saying it, you can actually measure the likes and retweets and posts and so on. And you can also say that, and, and you can, uh, you know, spell out 
the election is rigged in 240 characters on Twitter, which you can't a complicated conspiracy theory. I mean, try tweeting out about who killed John Kennedy, right? right. Or what's who's really responsible for the 9-11 attacks on uh, the World Trade Center and the Pentagon. So there is a special connection, I think, to the internet and social media. One is that you can, you have some evidence that a lot of people are saying it, but there's something even more important, which is that uh, you say it's like, um, what was the phrase you use? You use a wonderful phrase. It's like rumor gone mad, right? Yeah. Um, and that's true. But what's happening here is more than just passing along a conspiracy claim. What's happening is that people are identifying with it. And because it moves through social media, they're forming a kind of political we, right? We are the people who um, believe, and I'll come back to that if you ask me to, mm -hmm. who think that it's true that there's a deep state out to uh, uh, perpetrate a coup against the president. Right, right. So that leads to the next question, which is, so you identify these two targets, right, um, of, of the new conspiracism, which are political parties themselves, usually, uh, or sort of organized political entities, and then knowledge producing institutions. Uh, so why those, why, why those two, that, that there's a sort of laser like focus on those two? Um, what, why do you think that is? Well, it, you're exactly right that we claim that there are a couple of consequences and two of them are the delegitimation of foundational democratic institutions. And as you say, knowledge producing institutions and political parties. But we can't answer why those two unless we consider where this new conspiracism is coming from and why it's so powerful. And to put it very succinctly, and, and I'm saying the obvious, which is that we have not only a new conspiracism, but we have a conspiracy-minded president who uses this uh, and spreads these conspiracies himself. And he not only has a conspiracist mindset, he not only wants to own reality, but he has the capacity as president to impose his compromised sense of reality on the nation. And he is picking knowledge-producing institutions and political parties. So. I, I can talk about each one of them a little, if if that would be useful to you. Yeah, yeah I, I, I think, think I think certainly. certainly um, let me say, say like, like the, the parties party. makes the most sense. I think. Um, right. The, okay. So. Go ahead. The, 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 what we've we've been seeing for the last few years, and it really um, began before Trump is the delegitimation of political opposition. And any, you know, sort of sophomore in college will tell you that the defining characteristic of democracy is elections, right, run by parties and picking parties to run a government. And what that has assumed all the way back to the 18th century is that the opposition is a legitimate opposition, right, that it's a loyal opposition, that you may hate its policies, you may wish to get rid of it as a majority or even as, you know, winning seats in, in a legislature, but you don't consider the opposition something you want to eliminate, exterminate. You have a loyal opposition. And what's happened very um, vulgarly and deliberately under the Trump administration is that the Democrats have been um, delegitimated. And they, it starts with the party leaders. You know, Trump, uh, President Obama was an illegitimate president. He wasn't born in the United States with birtherism. And then it goes on to all the party leaders and finally to the party itself. And I could give you a whole list of times that the Trump and his allies have called the Democrats, leading Democrats, traitors, traitors to the country. It began, I think, with his first State of the Union speech where the Democrats didn't clap or didn't clap sufficiently for anything he said. And he said, can we call them traitors? Well, I guess so. They don't seem to love their country very much. And this has gone on and on um, in, in an escalating way so that now the Democratic Party is represented not only as treasonous, but as dangerous to the country. And so while, while American voters used to think, you know, they were asked this classic question of, um, 
how would you feel if your daughter married someone of the other party? And the answer would be that, oh, Ross, you're here. That would make them unhappy. But now they see a member of the other party as a threat. I mean, that's a real escalation of the danger. Okay. All right. So we're going to welcome on Russell Muirhead. Hey, uh, Russell. From, Hi. From Dartmouth. Thank, thanks so much for coming. Glad to be um, here. Yeah. All right. So we're 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 mid conversation here, just talking about some of the the main arguments of the book. Um, and one of the things that's interesting is I, I was I was wondering. It, it seems like the the argument of the book is that although everybody can have some sort of conspiratorial thinking, and and indeed some conspiracies are real. Um, you know, I. Well, when I started reading this, when I was thinking about sort of left-wing conspiracies, I, that famous phrase from Hillary Clinton, you know, that that the Monica Lewinsky thing was a vast right-wing conspiracy against right. against her, right. her husband and so on. Um, and and right now, quite literally, all over social media is that Trump didn't really have COVID. He's you know faking it, and right. and and that that's like uh, that's his own hoax to sort of gather sympathy points or get out of debates or something like that. So and and that's you know a lot of people are, a lot of people are saying. Um, and so, I was wondering, do you see? A, a sort of greater amount of conspiracy theory coming from a partisan basis, or is it the case that you also say that that the new conspiracism is kind of nihilistic, right? You call it politically sterile, right? That it's not sort of really doing anything beyond destruction, right? So I, I was wondering, do you see it coming? Is it is it more coming from the right, more coming from the left, and and why might that be? There's definitely more of it right now. And the reason there's more of it has to do with the ease of transmitting conspiratorial allegations. As you know, with the new communications technology, anyone can say anything to everyone in the whole world for free. That wasn't true even 20 years ago. It was hard to get um, an allegation on the air, on radio, on television, or in those valuable column inches of a newspaper or a magazine. So, so that's one reason there's a lot more of it. And as you say, it really does kind of line up with the, with the partisan fight these days. There's definitely a lot more of it coming from the right um, than, than from the left. Whether that continues uh, looking ahead is hard to say. Um, but, uh, but what it functions to do is right now is paint the other side in the political contest as a pure enemy rather than as an opponent with whom we should argue, it paints the other side as an enemy that has to be eliminated. And uh, so, for instance, you know, Pizzagate shows Hillary Clinton to be worse than a Nazi, someone who's torturing, sexually tra trafficking in children. Um, it's hard to make politics with somebody like that. And it's, it's more, you know, it'd be more appropriate to lock her up. So the, the new conspiracism speaks to people's tribal partisan passions um, but at the same time it, it doesn't um, it doesn't empower them and and it doesn't um, it doesn't lead to say a um, a reform that that cleanses the world of um, of corruption or um, treachery it uh, it leads nowhere and so though it aligns with partisan passions it's also sterile Okay. Okay. Uh, Tony, you want to jump in here? Yeah. I have a, I have a, I have a, uh, I have many things going through my head right now, but going off of what you just said, Russell, and, and, and either of you can answer it. Um, do you think part of the problem is that as technology and information are so easily, um, um, attainable, we start to realize we're always duped, right? Bill Clinton, George W. Bush, it, you know, 50, 60 years ago, it would take, you know, the presidential files being released to learn that like, oh, they were really screwing us over, but we, you know, it's 50 years later, it's okay. But now it's so immediate. Um, you know, we still have the Patriot Act. We still have horrible policies that we just forget about because we're on to the next kook that's representing our country. So I guess it's, it's, it's the question's two part. One is, do you think that that's a cause of conspiracy theories growing like and they're immediate like trump has corona i don't believe this is fake i don't think his ego would allow him to be in a hospital 
But there are plenty of people out there believing it's a hoax because why not? What, you know, we've been lied to with everything and you can prove it so quickly now. And the other is, um, what's the solution? Because it doesn't seem like social media is going anywhere and it doesn't seem like the people running the social media empires have any, um, uh, it doesn't seem like they're going to be filtering this anytime soon because it's a conflict of interest for them. So I don't know what the question is, but there's kind of two in there and, and you could kind of go off of it. Want to jump in, Nancy? Sure. Uh, I, the first thing I would say is that we rightly focus on the internet and social media mm -hmm. um, because it's so fast and uh, because it's a way for people to actually identify with one another as uh, centers to these conspiracies. But we shouldn't forget, like when you talk about COVID being a hoax, I mean, does Trump really have COVID? That there's a mainstream media, Fox News, right. that has an enormous part of the population and that is probably doing more to make this politically potent than all the social media combined. Sure. That is, I think that if we did not have this president and a party that was supine, right, and never uh, objected to or spoke truth to the craziest kinds of conspiracy claims, uh, we, all of this would be going on, and it might not be quite at the fringes that it always was, but it wouldn't be um, shaping the nature of American politics as it is today. And, and you mentioned um, that there is a lot of official lying, and there, there has been, and, and, and maybe in some, in some distant past, citizens just didn't really know about that, or, or as you say, it took them a long time to find out. Um, it took them a long time to find out that the Gulf of Tonkin events, which justified a resolution in Congress giving Lyndon Johnson enormous power to prosecute the war in Vietnam, it took people a long time to find out that was fake. Um, whereas, whereas now the, the, we, we find out about official lying often in the same news cycle as the lie. <laughs> and, uh, Indeed. And so I do think that that absolutely does create a kind of, um, it opens a window to all kinds of conspiratorial thinking. And that's why... I think Nancy and I really do think that conspiracy theory, an attempt, um, a conspiratorial allegation that's grounded in evidence, um, that, it, that looks for hidden patterns and tries to uncover the cover-up, the conspiracy theory can be very, very important, very empowering, very liberating. We don't dismiss all conspiracy theory as defective somehow um, or as dangerous. What we think we're seeing now, however, is conspiracy without the theory a conspiratorial allegation that makes no evidence, no uh, effort to gather evidence. It doesn't, it, you know, classic conspiracy theory undertakes an activity like an investigative journalist. It, it, people, the theorist tries to really, you know, um, locate all the facts that make the theory plausible. Now what we have are, you know, one word allegations, rigged. This is going to be the most corrupt, uh, you know, fraudulent election ever. So, so somebody is conspiring to to make this election fraudulent to the disadvantage of Trump, but but that that allegation is made without a single fact adduced, without a single observation, and and so what it does is it assaults, I mean, disorients people, and and assaults our common sense, as if we could believe just anything at all because you know we want it to be so. Could I go back to Tony's question? Mm -hmm. um, and, and Russ's answer about lies. There have always been official lies. There has never been a president and a party that lies 10 times a day about the most insignificant and petty things, right? These are not big political lies, right? These are, uh, this is uh, a, a president who is solipsistic, who can't stand any fact or reality that uh, isn't, doesn't redound to his benefit and who will lie many times a day. I mean, I, I haven't kept up with the, the final count, but it was up in the tens of thousands of lies. The conspiracism that he and others spread is different from a lie, right? They, there aren't that many of them, right? The lies are ephemera. They come and go, they're succeeded by the next lie, nobody can remember them. The conspiracy theories are sort of narratives that have uh, sticking power because 
they get, e even, if, even if people don't believe the facts of them, the objective evidence, since there is no objective evidence, they get at some deep truth that people assent to. So if, if they say that the election is rigged, yes, the deep truth is that the opposition would do anything to get us out of power. Mm -hmm. right? So there's a deeper truth that goes beyond the fact of the evidence or the lack of the evidence. And it, it, the deep truth operates when there's a conspiracy claim, not necessarily when there's a lie, because the lying that's going on now is not the kind of big political lie that Tony was talking about. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this raises a question for me, uh, which is... <laughs> I don't know. How, how dumb are we? No, no, no. <laughs> well, well, well. Um, the, the argument of really, it's about reality, mm -hmm. right? That, that, that to the yeah. construction of reality and is there how we perceive reality and a shared reality, right? So it, it makes me think about Carl Rove's, you know, you people, you live in the reality based community. We are the reality makers, mm -hmm. right? which you could go back to like Kissinger for that, who kind of was making similar arguments <laughs> as that we're going to sort of manufacture the future before you even know it. And then we're going to act upon it. Right. Um, and so it seems like there's sort of this tradition coming and, and it's partisan in a certain way, I would argue that there's uh, an attack. And this has always been the case that the, the attack on in one side is like, oh, it's like postmodernism is, is the problem. <laughs> it's, it's the destruction of reality is coming from the left or something like that. But actually, it seems like the one that's very powerful and is actually shifting uh, the very ground beneath our feet is coming from the right. And I think and I'd love to hear what you have to say about this is that it's because it's very useful for a very actually traditional right-wing agenda, which is, you know, like Grover Norquist, who has been having like a breakfast in Washington once a week for years to get tax cuts going for, you know, Americans for tax reform, hasn't always been that successful. But once he has somebody in power who can completely delegitimize government, suddenly Starve the Beast makes a lot of sense, right? Why would you, why would you want these governmental institutions and so on? Right. So it so weirdly, there's like this political alignment that comes by virtue of uh, destroying reality. <laughs> right. And so does that does that does that sound right? Does that make sense? Is that is that why there is this sort of it's not an even odd political bedfellows. It kind of makes sense that they're bedfellows. Yeah, I think. Well, yeah, go ahead, Nancy. No, you go, Russ. I mean, I, I do think that's right. I think that the the, the ultimate effect of of um, the, the, the kind of conspiracism that we see today in politics is to impose a distorted reality um, on on the nation, and um, and to use. I mean, it used to be said just a few years ago. Scholars of conspiracy theory said conspiratorial thinking is is for the is for the outsider, for people on the periphery, for people who are locked out of power. It's how they make sense of their own powerlessness and sometimes decline. That 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 conventional wisdom about conspiracism is turned on its head when someone with a conspiratorial mindset inhabits the White House, the most powerful office in the world, and uses that power, as you say, to impose his own distorted reality on everyone. And, and it suits, you know, the, the, the power of conspiracism suits people who, who are hungry for power, because, because mm. for, if, you, if you really want power, it, reality is an impediment. Reality is this thing that, that you know, you have to, it constrains what you can do and what, what you can achieve. Reality tells you, you know, the unemployment rate is X. And, and, and if that's high when you want it to be low, then reality is kind of an insult or, or an obstacle. And, and so the, the allure of something like, you know, conspiracism to, to, a, to a real power seeker is that it allows them, it, it, it promises them, let's put it that way that they can remake reality as they please. Yeah, Amit, you talked about the connection between conservatism and this uh, conspiracism from the right. And, and I think that's true. The, the phrase we use is that there's a partisan penumbra, a sort of shadow of partisanship around conspiracism. And at first it was sort of rational and calculated. That is, the, the conservatives wanted to deny climate change, right? because of fossil fuel 
industries and corporate interests and so on. And so there, there was a, and because they were interested in limiting government and the delegitimation of these institutions seemed to serve them. But I think that's no longer the case. I mean, I think things have changed. First of all, the Republican Party not only seems to have exactly its, its, its own old principles and political goals, and it has been completely subordinated to Trump and the, and the conspiracists. So that's the, the first thing. And the second thing is that what we've seen under Trump and this new conspiracism is really a delegitimation of all knowledge producing institutions. In other words, it's not selective and political and, and um, tactical, like against climate science. It's every, every institution that produces knowledge, um, the intelligence agencies. The Republicans would never have attacked on their own, right, for their own reasons, the intelligence agencies, right, or the CIA or the FBI or whatever. So we see a wholesale attack on knowledge producing institutions inside and outside outside of government. And why is that? Because you have uh, uh, somebody who wants to own reality. And as to piggyback on what Russ was saying, you can't own reality if you have as your sort of baseline certain kinds of acceptance of facts, even if the significance of those facts is something you quarrel about and, um, and so on. And I think that what we've seen happening in the last month is a real clash between uh, those people who believe in expertise and specialized knowledge and those who are willing to, to, to completely delegitimate it. And COVID has brought this to a, to a head in a spectacular way. Yeah, and what it really, and it's not just believing in the specialized knowledge or the expertise, it's also believing in the process that, that yeah. experts follow in order to, to get to their conclusions. I mean, experts can be wrong, and they, they're probably wrong more than they're right, but, but it, what gives them integrity is the process they follow which involve, involves some mechanism of self-correction. Um, and and, and uh, once we lose all confidence in that process, then, then we open ourselves up to a political world in which um, the powerful can, can just make stuff up with impunity. Right. And it, it makes it also, yeah. and as you say, it delegit, delegitimates democracy because it makes it very, very hard for, for, the, for the political decision makers to make good decisions. If they don't have access to elemental facts, they're not going to make decisions that are effective in the world. And when the effectiveness of, of democratic government looks like it's declining, as it does to many citizens, that's going to make democracy as a system look less worthy. And, and this is why we think that, that the kind of conspiracism we're seeing today um, is, is really a great friend to authoritarianism and a real threat not just to some, you know, not, not just to Democrats, but to, to, to democracy. If I could jump in with one of the things that I really always like to insert, and that is what we mean when we say that something's delegitimated, right? The Environmental Protection Agency or the, uh, or the leadership of the opposition. And it's not quite the same as mistrust. They're often used interchangeably. But, you know, a certain amount of mistrust and skepticism is good in a democracy. And even governments that lose trust over some foreign affairs debacle or whatever um, can gain it back, right, over time. Delegitimation is something else. It says that the institution or the person no longer has any meaning, any value, or any authority, that it doesn't have a claim on our compliance or on our consent. And I think that that's what we've seen, that the courts, when they rule in the way that you don't like, no longer have any authority over us, right? Or the Justice Department, when it goes about the ordinary rule of law, no longer has authority for us. And an epidemiologist shouldn't be taken as authorities. Yeah, but that's where the rubber like, hits the You know, these sort of geeky agencies in the Bureau of Labor Statistics, where you have you know, economists <laughs> who are working out a process to estimate the unemployment rate in the United States. And when Trump was running, he charged that they were conspiring against him. Um, manufacturing artificially low unemployment rates to make Obama look good, and and uh, um, and, and you know, so even even that, even the Bureau of Labor Statistics, an utterly nonpartisan data collecting, you know, Bureau of Analysis, becomes delegitimated. 
My favorite example. Can I give my favorite example? Yes. It was the day after Trump's inauguration. He had claimed that he had the big, biggest inaugural crowd ever, biggest right. in history. Nobody's ever seen anything like it. And the next day, the National Park Service put out, as they do after every inauguration, photographs yep. of the event. And the photographs show that the crowd was moderate, right? Or modest. It wasn't the biggest in history. And what did Trump say? What did Trump say? They doctored the, they doctored the pictures. They doctored the photographs. Yeah. I mean, it, that is a, it, it's, it was just astounding to me. It's one of the things that made me want to really write this book with Russ because it was so disorienting. It was such an obvious assault on common sense. There was no way of grappling with it. And it turned out to be the second, if you take birth risen to the first, of, you know, four or five consistent conspiracy claims without evidence, without argument. Do you think he is aware of this? Like, do you think Trump sits around the White House and he's like, you know what? I got a great lie. They're going to believe it. Or do you think he believes the conspiracies he creates in his wacky mind? That's a, it's such an interesting psychological question, not just about him, but, but maybe about anyone who really propounds, you know, some of the people who spread Pizzagate, you wonder, well, or QAnon is the one that really puts it to the test. And you wonder, yeah. well, do, you know, what do people believe? And Nancy and I hy hypothesize that it's not really a matter of belief. It's not really a matter of belief in a set of propositions. You know, JFK Jr. will return as part of the QAnon, uh, you know, uh, idea. Um, it's more an expression of um, tribal spirit, team spirit. Mm. Um, it's, it's, uh, it's more about... Um, it's, it's more about repeating something um, for the sake of, uh, of, of, um, of satisfying your tribal passions mm. than it is really believing so, that the world has a certain right. kind of character to it. Right. The, fra the phrase we use is that it's true enough. Right. right. It's not literally true. It's true enough. I remember when Sarah Huckabee Sanders was confronted with the fact that a video that the administration had put out that showed a Muslim immigrant attacking an American mm -hmm. was a falsified video. Right. It had been doctored. And she was confronted with this and she didn't deny it. What she said was, well, the video may not be real, but the threat is. That's what made the video true enough to people. Right. That the threat was real. Right. That I mean, that's the like the Fox News approach to half the videos they they show is is sometimes it's you know when they're talking about these anarchist jurisdictions and stuff like that. Sometimes it's not even video of the United States. Right. They're 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 showing you know video of all sorts of just right. you know, uh, destruction. Nancy um, Tony asked us earlier, what can be done? Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. Because we could sit and talk about it, right? But but you know, Trump. Trump can't possibly be the, you know, the first, it's not, it's not Trump has now created this uh, uh, conspiracy overload, right? Trump is the result of years and years of, of media, uh, like Nancy said, going unchecked. There's no, there's no uh, media police out there, right? There's no place we go. I mean, I, I like NPR, but People that don't like NPR think they're fake. Well, so, there used to be something called the fairness doctrine. Right, right. There, there's no there's no media police out there, which is like, you know, Tucker Carlson's he's he's Jerry Springer. I mean, he, that's that's the level of journalism he has. It's not real. Um, so we've his allowed lawyers are literally arguing that. Yeah, has argued arguing that. We, so we've allowed our society, our media to get to this place. And Trump is the result of it. Um you could just, yeah, maybe Nancy disagrees with me. <laughs> no, no, I don't disagree. I just, yeah. I just want us to keep in mind that you could have a whole universe mm -hmm. of conspiracy claims out there. Sure. And they wouldn't have the danger that they pose now if we wouldn't have a government that it could impose this reality on the nation by altering institutions and delegitimating institutions and so on and so forth. So they're not two separate things. You're perfectly right. right. And you could get rid of Trump and conspiracism won't disappear. It's out there and it, it's lucrative. We have conspiracy entrepreneurs who make money off it. It has become like gaming. There are people who spend their lives following this and love it like QAnon. I mean, it has a, and it can be very entertaining. So it's, it's not gonna go away, but it will not, 
alter public life and the composition and governability of this country. No, but you see, you see like, and, and there's, there's, there's plenty of Democrats Amit and I have major problems with, but that's a different pod. That's a different episode. Um, but you see all of these Republicans out there that are just going along with this. So yes, Trump is this unhinged psychopath and he's dangerous to the world, let alone our democracy. But how has this happened where, you know, some of these senators are, are technically or theoretically smart people. Some of them are lawyers. Some of them are former uh, professors or, or, or doctors. I mean, Ben Carson's a doctor. Yeah. <laughs> like these are people who are actually educated in our system. And how is this possible that this psycho has completely taken control of their brains and their action? That's the part. Actions. That's the part. Their actions. Yeah, their actions. And I don't know how that happened. I mean, Nancy, just even fear? I thought when we were first, when we were finishing the first version of our book, uh, a lot of people are saying, we thought that Republican officials would would contain um, the, the baseless conspiracism, especially that's propagated by Trump. We were pretty confident that, that they would speak truth to conspiracism. And there were some early indications that they might, whether it was Jeff Flake or Ben Sass or, mm-hmm. or others. And and I have to say, I'm I'm really uh, surprised by how thoroughly and extensively Trump was able to take over the Republican Party. And it does make me worry that the techniques he's using to get power, possibly to keep it, are ones that others are studying and will continue to use, in, including this mm-hmm. technique of, of conspiracism. Mm-hmm. And, and so I guess I, I no longer have as much confidence that you might say elites in the, in the Republican Party or conservative elites. You see, the conservative project, to, to make it, real to activate it to to it needs access to facts real conservatives want to govern they don't just want to destroy and if they're going to govern effectively they're going to need a coherent bureaucracy with agencies that excavate and create facts that allow us to make sensible decisions and so i I didn't we didn't see this as necessarily conservative we thought it would be contained by by conservative elites and republican officials and it, it hasn't been so that's a surprise to me I think there's a, I think there's an additional answer, although I completely subscribe to what Russ has said. If you assume that most of the uh, uh, Republicans who have been who allowed themselves to be subjects of Trump um, are cynical, that this is a matter of political self-preservation, expedience. which m- most uh, experience, which most people think, then there's a pretty obvious explanation for why that is. That is because the Republican Party over recent years, I mean, it goes back farther, but over recent years has become a narrower and narrower political party. After their last defeat, there was this attempt to make them more inclusive. We have to go after the Hispanic vote. We have to go after the black vote. And for a variety of reasons, they never did that. And they have now come to a point where they have this little constituency, right? A small constituency, whether 30 or 40 percent of the people and um, it's a white constituency, and some of it at least is a quite racist constituency, and it's a nationalist constituency. That's their constituency, and Trump knows how to get their votes. Mm-hmm. And so they, they went along because they had to go along. I mean, the, the only other thing they could do besides go trying to get these voters in the way that Trump has is to uh, suppress the vote on the other side. Yeah, and another way and of saying that is- obviously gone that way too, so. Yeah, primaries have, have become you know, institutions that pull the parties to the extremes because the people who remember to show up or activated to show up on a primary day um, are more ideologically extreme than people who you know, vote in a general election. And right. and uh, yeah, so as Nancy says, he has that primary electorate locked up, and and that that is the the instrument of his power over Republicans. Mm. Nancy, what can we do about it? Assuming that Republic the Republican Party isn't going to be part of the solution. Um, I mean, one of the things I think <laughs> I, I think I, you know I, I have one answer. I think you have to vote, and I think you have to vote this president out of office, and I think. That will make a major change. As I say, it won't change the political culture overall, but it will change the capacity to impose this um, unreality uh, uh, on the nation. I do think that speaking truth and fact-checking are effective, and I don't think they're effective in changing the minds of conspiracists or the people who go along, 
but I think they're effective in bolstering the sort of self-confidence and, and um, reality checking that most citizens need. They, they right? counter because the disorientation, Nancy. That's right. They counter the That's disorientation right. of people who don't necessarily believe in the conspiracy, but aren't quite, they can be brought to a place where they don't know what to believe. So the journalistic right. function is more important than ever. Exactly. And then I think that the third thing is that whistleblowers and others who show what has happened to our institutions, the institutions that we need, who give evidence of it, bolster the rest of the citizens. And that's why I think that COVID has, has done them in. I think COVID is the end. We needed a government to keep us safe. Mm -hmm. And it's very clear to people, whether they were Trumpists or not, um, that, that there's been a failure of government, that these people are not dealing with reality, that they're not dealing with science. And it's not just on a, a large abstract level. You know, people see on t local television, not distant elites, the nurses and the doctors and the people who are dying and, and people have a death anxiety. And I think he has done himself in really now with this lying again about the COVID that he's had mm -hmm. and the way in which he, it, his imperiling of everybody in the White House and the Secret Service is a microcosm of how he's imperiled the nation. Right. And I think, I think this is going to have, um, have consequences for him. Yeah. I like that, Nancy, I, the microcosm yeah, of how he's imperiled the nation. Yeah. yeah. I, I had one question and then we can um move to our to our last part which which is in when you're talking about QAnon in the book um and i i don't know if this is from the the first uh version without the new preface um but you you'd argued that it's a sort of ephemeral um phenomenon right um and i've been kind of Ever since the coming of Sarah Palin, I've been waiting for this idiot wind to blow over, and it seems like it's turning into a hurricane, you know. It, and it and it and it's and it's just and now there's Marjorie, what's her name, Green or something in mm -hmm. Georgia, um, who's in a safe Republican district, and she's a QAnon person, right? Um, so, is that what kind of bellwether is that? That's right? a great question. It's a great question. I have to say, I remember Nancy, you and I. Um, Studying QAnon at the time we were writing, you know, finishing our manuscript, it was it was pretty fresh on the scene at that point, and we debated: do we do we address it in the book? How does it fit into our overall argument? And and we did, I think, as you as you noticed uh, astutely, we did anticipate that it would be gone by the time the book came out. Um, and and so you know, if you're writing a book, you're writing something that you expect to last for a while. You don't you've got to be hesitant to put in things that are going to just disappear. We didn't think it had the staying power, so we were wrong. And I think what we didn't quite, uh, we were right to pay attention to it, but wrong to think it would be ephemeral. We didn't quite grasp that, 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 that it, it's true. It's kind of the epitome of a conspiracy, conspiratorial cloud that isn't about affirming what you believe about the world at all. It's about participation. And the power of QAnon was found in the, in the invitation it gave to tens of thousands of people to join the message board and uh, interpret the crumbs uh, along with everyone else. And, and it's, it's not a theory about how the way the world is. It's a mode of participation. And, um, and I think that's why it's still out there. In fact, in a certain way, it's metastasized. And you can even see it in Europe today. There's QAnon in Germany. Yeah. And in Britain. I in just Britain. did a BBC thing on this. I think... Um, yeah, we, we were wrong, although we'll see what happens with, with QAnon, but I think that it has certain elements that have to be taken seriously and paid attention to. And in fairness to us, I think not all of the elements were obvious at the very start. Yeah, sure, sure. One is that this kind of demonization and dehumanization of the people that don't like. They, they take up old Nazi claims like uh, bloodletting, Right of dehumanizing the enemy, of saying that the enemy can be eliminated, they're apocalyptic. They have they have developed into some of the characteristics of a dangerous cult. Mm -hmm. They are out there in public, not just online. Uh, on the other hand, just recently, they seem to be diluting themselves. That is, they've taken on the vaxxers, which anti-vaxxers, which means that they've taken on women. They always excluded yeah, it women. Was, when we were when we were studying the posts, it was incredibly misogynistic 
Right. So now, now there are all these women because they want the anti-vaxxers. So as they're morphing and enlarging, right, they may actually be uh, uh, becoming, you know, sort of politically dissipated. Not that they ever, we ever knew what their political goals were, except to, you know, eliminate Hillary Clinton and uh, globalists and liberals. Yeah, and it functioned but, in its first, in wave one, it functioned to, um, as an antidote to the Mueller investigation. Because what right. it said was that, the, that Mueller, the Mueller investigation was a ruse to distract people from the fact that Trump was investigating this global cabal uh, stretching from Soros to, to Clinton, including Obama, and was preparing a raft of indictments. And, and that on a certain day, all the indictments would come down and these liberal globalists would all, child molester liberal globalists would all be arrested. And, and so what you see in the news, which is Trump having you know, possibly collaborated with Russia um, to defeat his political opponent was, was not really what, what the truth was. It was just the reverse. That was just a, a distraction. So that was the, that's how it functioned in, in the first wave. Now it's way beyond that. Yeah. It's so crazy that there's going to be somebody in Congress who reads Q drops, right? I mean, that's going to happen. Like, yeah, it, it's just shocking. Yeah. It's it's so shocking. Um, which, also, which, oh, sorry, which tells you how important your book is because you're you've highlighted something that's literally Donald Trump may go away, but who knows what. Marjorie Green's career is going to be right. I mean, you know, this is this is I don't know. It's it's just crazy. Yeah. But it's it's it, it's the the thing that should be troubling to us really is the people who will elect her. I mean, she's I I don't think she's a Q follower. I think she's got a constituency, and that, that this is a uh, you know her her way of uh, of appealing to them and showing that she's really 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 a Trumpist and on their side. Hmm. But who who are these people? Right. Um, right. There's, there's another interesting, you know, fact about QAnon has been how difficult it's been for the social media platforms to contain it. So there has mm -hmm. actually been an effort um, to, to deplatform QAnon, and it's I think been very, very difficult to succeed at. Now the, there was another effort to deplatform uh, Alex Jones, and that was successful. Alex Jones, the reach of Alex Jones was severely constricted once once he no longer had access to YouTube, and so this gatekeeping function that used to be exercised by editors and producers and say, you know, that, that really doesn't seem right. I'm not going to put it on the air. I'm not going to go with that. I'm not going to run that. I'm not going to print that. That, which, mm -hmm. that gatekeeping function was kind of was obliterated by these anything goes communication platforms like Twitter and mm -hmm. Facebook and, and YouTube. And they began, those companies have begun very, very meekly to recreate a little bit of the gatekeeping function. And the question is, can they under current technological conditions succeed at all at that. And they have a little bit with, with Alex Jones. They haven't with QAnon. Right. Yeah, I've heard that QAnon is now, their their new way of spreading is through the wellness community, mm. uh, where sort of yoga, the yoga community and so on, um, because what they realize, and this goes to your point about the entrepreneurship, is that if they these people start posting QAnon things, they get a lot of participation, right? A lot of followers and things like that. And suddenly they, brands are, are sponsoring them, et cetera, right? So it's this- Make money. Uh, yeah, yeah, it's this uh, terrible uh, confluence. <laughs> um, okay, so we're gonna, we're gonna take a pause and we're gonna end our show with something that we always do, which is what we call party favors. And Tony's gonna tell you about it in a second. So let's do that. Sounds fun.
Okay. So party favors is this bit um and I came up with that we regret every week, but it's part of the show. <laughs> you gotta do it. It's part where of the show. We, <laughs> we just kind of give some unsolicited advice to both parties, the Democrats and the Republicans, you know, assuming they're listening to us, which they're probably not. Um, although we've had a couple congressmen on. Um, so we just do a little advice, take it or leave it. I'll start. And you'll get, and you can participate if you'd like to, or comment on what we do. It's up to you. Um, and I'm going to start with the um, Republicans because it's very easy. This is so easy. And you think maybe they're going to get it right? <laughs> Run, run <laughs> away from Trump. He's given you the greatest gift ever, which is by getting COVID and putting Secret Service and young interns and police and doctors in harm's way. He's not even hiding it anymore. He's actively uh, potentially killing people. This is finally, as we said earlier, he's controlling them. If ever there's going to be a break in, you know what? This is finally too far. What you just did is disgusting. This would be the time there might be one senator that might survive the potential blue wave coming in. You got 30 days to beat the hell out of Trump and to actually convince people you're not a crazy robot. Um, that's my advice. I think it's probably too late for Lindsey Graham, uh, but there are a couple other ones out there that might be able to uh, go at Trump and not vote for the Supreme Court nominee and just get the hell into the next election, win or lose. Because what I always say is this is a terrible election to win either party. We're going to have a we're going to have a financial recession. COVID's still going to stick around. People are going to get more angry after they don't see their relatives over the holidays and they're going to want to blame somebody. I wouldn't want to be the Democrat winning this election, although I think it's just important to take it because we got to get rid of Trump. But it's a thankless, terrible uh, inheritance of a of a uh, administration you're going to get. That sounds about right. I was going to say if we're going to go with the GOP, I was just going to say three words, which is Amy Coney Barrett. That's all they have to push, and they're going to get so many votes and mobilization because of that. And they're doing that, right? Mitch McConnell. Um, you know, they they make no bones about hypocrisy and things like that. You know, they. They got Kavanaugh on after a woman said that she was sexually assaulted by him. And they said, that's really terrible. We're going to put on Kavanaugh. Uh, so hypocrisy doesn't bother them, right? So they're doing actually, Mitch McConnell's doing, um, it's cynical and terrible, uh, but he's doing the bidding of the party. Uh, and it will work electorally, I think. That sounds right to me. I, I do think that the, the, the GOP is in, in deep trouble not so much necessarily with respect to this election or the next election, but with respect to its core identity. It's adopted the trade policy of Bernie Sanders. It's adopted the foreign policy of Howard Dean. And it's adopted a domestic financial policy toward deficits that it always attributed to um, tax and spend uh, Democrats. Uh, it's running deficits for no reason that are gargantuan. So what's left? What's left, the only thing that's left, is, as you point out, is conservative jurisprudence. Um, and, and I don't think that will be enough to, to save the soul of, of the conservative party. Nancy, do you want to say anything? <laughs> or do you just not want to give these guys advice at all, which I totally understand? <laughs> I, I, I think that you're right about the, the court, um, but I don't think it's going to go far enough. I think that at this point, voter suppression and the arguments about voter fraud are probably going to be their only way to get the votes that they're going to get. And to that extent, they're dependent really on the state legislatures, which are doing, which are doing a lot um, across the board to suppress Democratic votes. Okay. All right. So let's go to the Dems now. So with the Dems, I've got two things. One is that they've got to get on the ground and mobilize the vote. I know there, there was this strategy that they were saying that we don't need to do that because, we do, first of all, we don't want to endanger our personnel and people don't really want to talk face to face and things like that. This is all true. But actually motivating people to get out day of, you need some face time. So you need to have some some efforts. And it seems like the Republicans are are doing more of this. And then the second thing I would say is that they need to line up the best constitutional lawyers of the country <laughs> because there's going to be a cascade of cases disputing 
this election when Trump claims victory on November 3rd, uh, when all the votes haven't even been counted. Right. So that's mm -hmm. that's what I would say. Yeah, I agree with that. Um, I, I, although I'm more and more and you can knock on wood if you want to. But I, I think I don't think it's going to be as close as people think. I, I, I think this 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 little gift of him getting COVID is going to push it a little bit further. Um, what I would say is, and I was I was the one screaming, let's not let's not do any debates because I was I was thinking maybe Biden didn't have any marbles left. Um, but I thought for as bad as that debate was, I thought Biden seemed somewhat presidential and Trump really seemed like a spoiled child. Um, I think it would be a very wise decision to not debate next week. I would push it an extra week, blame it on COVID, which is actually valid because Trump clearly will, will show up with COVID and not tell anybody. Um, I would debate him again and I would hit him hard with putting all these people's lives at risk. But I thought one of the really under, um, one of the un, kind of a moment in the last debate, which kind of got a little lost under the screaming was when Biden talked about Hunter Biden having a drug problem. And it, to me, it was the most powerful part of the debate that some people did get, but I don't think enough people, you know, one in five people are, are suffering from some sort of an addiction. And that's the first time I ever heard Biden say, yeah, He's kind of a screw up. He's got a bad drug problem. And I wanted him to talk about that more because I think it's very relatable to a lot of those Ohio swing state voters, the, the uh, Western Pennsylvania. I think there's serious opioid problems. And to hear him talking about talk about the struggles of having a son today that still is uh, struggling with drug problems, I think is something he needs to, to push in on more. All right. And I have to say, if, if we're giving advice to Democrats, I, I would like to build on what you both said to say that I would urge the, the Democratic Party, from Biden, the people around him, and, and Democratic officials in the Senate and Congress, to not get this so distracted by short-term tactics that they forget about the really long-term goals that ought to define the party. What we yes. need, and the real solution to the kinds of problems that, that Nancy and I have, have mapped, is a new era of democratic reform, a comprehensive effort to renovate mm. democracy that might take two decades, like the progressive era project of renovating democracy took. And I think we need to start that. We need to be very ambitious and set out a course for making democracy look worthy to democratic citizens again. And, mm. and the place to start is with the election process. We need to make our electoral process rock solid so that when demagogues arrive and say that there's an election that's rigged, Citizens understand that it's not. Mm. That makes a lot of sense. Good. Yep. Okay, uh, Nancy, did you have? Did you want to jump in or anything? Well, I think you've all put it very well. And if all of this goes downhill, <laughs> the Democrats have to <laughs> have to go to the streets. Yes. 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 Mm -hmm. Okay. This is this is a lot of good advice. Okay. Uh, I want to thank you both so yes. much for coming on. We learned so much. Um, your book is fantastic. I'm telling everybody I see that they have to read it. Um, there's so much in there and it's eminently readable too. It's, it's a great read. Uh, so, so everybody should go out there, run out there and buy it. Mm -hmm. Um, and we hope to have you on again. Yes. Let's see what happens after the election. Right on, right on. Thank you. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for doing this. Okay. QAnon. Wow. What a terrible name. QAnon sounds like a cheap TV. Right. It does. Doesn't it? It does. Like QAnon. Yeah. Yeah. Like also a, just, yeah, yeah, I don't know. They're, it's it's really interesting hearing from them. It's one it's of those just, TVs you get with the built-in DVD player. I had one. They were yeah. da, da woos. I yeah. Yeah. There you go. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> but similar. Um, yeah. It's, it's just, uh, it's interesting. I mean, it's like the whole social media platforms with no checks and balances and these creeps Zuckerberg and all these creeps out there that just allow it. It's just, I know. I, I, I don't know. How do, how do you sleep it? How much money do you need? I know. How much that's mo that's hey. my thing with these m men, really men. 
How much money do you need? Jeff Bezos. Jeff, if right. I had that kind of money, I'm telling you, I wouldn't, I, I'm good. Yeah. Like, his ex-wife has mean? already signed that pledge to give away most give of it. Give it away. What are you do? What are you trying not, to get here? Yeah. What is it? I don't know. Like, how do you, how are you watching society burn to the ground? People starve, people not be able to pay uh, health insurance. And you're just what? In your fucking fifth house with because your, they're cocooned, cocooned, you know, it's, it's, you know, completely insulated from it. And it's we've given them the power because these little babies in, in Congress and Senate, they need to break these com companies up. All of them. They need to bust them up. And, there's and, talk and of that. They, well, there's always talk, but let's yeah. see it happen. Yeah. Let's bust. Let, let's make that part of the democratic platform. What they're just talking about. Bust up Google, bust up Apple, Facebook, all of them. They're, they have too much power. They have too much influence over world politics. Goodbye. Yeah. I anyway. don't disagree. All right. Well, learn while a lot. I while, while I type on my iPhone. <laughs> yeah, I know. Wait, let me just tweet that. Yeah. I'll give this thing up tomorrow if, if, if all this went away. I don't care. I know. Go back know. to cordless phones. I like those. That's right. Go back to Rotary. Okay. okay. Well, we uh, that was a great episode. We're back next week. We're back, back every week, week until yeah. the stupid election. Yeah, so. I mean, it's coming up. So, you know. Well, I think we have one more guest, and then we're going to do a couple, just me and Amit, teeing everybody up for uh, either the end of democracy or the new chapter of the world. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, check us out on uh, Instagram, Facebook. Um, check out our website because that's really what all we're those terrible things in. that we just talked about. Yeah, yeah and we're we're, we're, there. we're talking about getting rid of them. So go to our web, go to our website, <laughs> and send us a note. Uh, we still have t-shirts left, so buy those. Yes. Um, go yes. on our website. Enough. Buy t-shirts. Help people out. Um, and uh, we will uh, see you next week. See you next week. We'll